Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I don't know about you, but in this era of misinformation, conspiracy theories, and alternate facts, I find great comfort in science. So today, in honor of this magnificent method that the human animal has developed to improve its chaotic circumstances, we celebrate recent firsts in scientific observations and achievements. You'll hear from the lead researchers behind headlines like, for the first time, scientists have received a radio signal from an alien planet, malignant cancer diagnosed in a dinosaur for the first time, and for the first time ever, scientists caught time crystals interacting. Don't worry, I didn't know what time crystals were either, but you'll find out, and you'll feel better for it. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. There's not a lot of great headlines in the news lately, you know, between a contentious election, rioting in the Capitol, a raging pandemic, and lots and lots of dangerous misinformation. This hour, well, in every hour of Audacious, misinformation is banned, and different headlines get the attention they deserve. Today, we celebrate firsts in recent scientific observation and achievement. Like, did you know that for the first time, scientists have received a radio signal from an alien planet? Or for the first time, the mass of human-made materials exceeds Earth's biomass? Or that scientists have confirmed the first case of cancer found in a dinosaur fossil? We'll get to those later, but the first first begins with this audio, which was posted last month on SoundCloud. That was the sound of a perfect fluid. And it was recorded for the first time ever by a team of scientists at MIT. You may have a lot of questions already. What does this sound tell us? And why should we care in a perfect fluid? I know from my high school science class and a refresher via Google that a fluid is any substance that conforms to the shape of its container like liquid, gas, and plasma. But what is a perfect fluid? Martin Zwierlein, the MIT scientist leading this charge, can tell you. A perfect fluid can run with the least amount of viscosity. So you don't lose any energy as it flows around, and it flows as perfectly as you can possibly imagine. Okay, all right. So why should we care how it sounds? Yeah, so think about electrons running around in wires, they actually heat up our wires. That's why our laptops get really hot when we put them on our laps for a long time. 
And that's really bad. And actually, we lose a lot of energy uh, in our country by just transporting electricity from A to B. So we need to learn how to make things, especially electrons, flow more perfectly without a lot of friction. Why do we care how it sounds, though? Yeah, <laughs> to measure the properties of substances, people have used sound all the time. Like if I'm underwater and I'm screaming, I hear that the sound is sort of weird and distorted. And that teaches me something about how sound propagates in water. And so uh, tapping on a piece of wood and listening on the other side of, of a big tree stamp also teaches me about the propagation of sound and teaches me about the elasticity properties of that piece of wood. So that's a good idea to use sound to measure the transport properties of any substance, including fluids. And we can learn from how quickly the sound diminishes. We can learn about the viscosity of the substance. So how did you record this? So it's quite hilarious. We work with a puff of gas a million times thinner than air inside a vacuum chamber. This puff of gas is a few billionths of a degree above absolute zero temperature. So that's a billionth. <laughs> it's very, very cold. But we don't have to wear suits. It's all happening inside a vacuum chamber. And now we can take pictures of this puff of gas, just like we can take pictures of clouds in the sky. We just look at them. <laughs> they fluoresce at us. Or we can uh, see their shadow if we shine light onto them and we record the shadow. So that's how we see what's going on inside this puff of gas. And now we just shake it. We just tap on one side of our container and watch density ripples pass through the cloud. Now you might say, what's your container? You cannot hold on to this thing. We use light as a perfect container for the perfect fluid. Light is just wonderful. Whenever the atoms see the boundary of, of our system, which is a light field, they bounce back. So we use a light shaped in the form of a Coke can to contain our puff of gas. And you didn't hit it just once, right? You hit it a bunch of times. Exactly. You want to probe it at all frequencies. You want to sing low and then high and then listen to the resonances. Maybe you do this in your bathroom. I sometimes <laughs> do, actually. Um, when you see, when you hear the resonances of your room, because the sound waves repel from the walls, come back to you. And if one of these sound wavelengths fits inside the bathroom, you hear a resonance. And those were the ones we were hunting for. Can we see, can we hear, <laughs> if you want, resonances in our puff of gas as we vibrate the walls of light? If we vibrate the walls on one side and, and watch whether there's a resonance inside this puff of gas. So that worked out. We were very excited to see these sound resonances. It is a tenth of a millimeter in length. So it's a kind of a tiny thing, but you can see it. You can take pictures of these density ripples and turn them into sound, of course. Now, looking at the sound waves on my screen, you know, you know, sound waves go up and down, and really loud sounds look big, and smaller sounds look small, and you have different shapes depending on the acoustics of the room. You know, looking at this very special waveform, it looks like like a mountainscape, right? And I see 10 mountains. The first three have sharper peaks at the top and the following mountains of sound kind of look like domes getting smaller and smaller. Talk me through what those sound waves 
are telling us visually and audibly. So, so this is a beautiful description you just gave. At low frequencies, you get first n- no response from the fluid. It doesn't listen to you, so to speak. But then suddenly there's a sharp resonance where, for example, at 60 hertz, right? 60 times per second, you hear a nice vibration of the sound. There's a big spike. But then it goes down again because, again, it's, it's not resonating. And then at higher frequencies, you still get resonances, but they're broader and not as peaked because precisely the fluid dissipates more now. And that's a thing every fluid does. At higher and higher frequencies, it is worse and worse at propagating sound. So low frequencies propagate easily, high frequencies don't. And so that gives you these diminished heights of the mountains and this broader range where you can excite the sound because it's not such a perfect resonance anymore. So from the width of these mountains, we can determine the viscosity of the fluid. This works with your water, uh, by the way, as well. You could tap your water and watch the sound waves die out and you would learn about the viscosity of water or coffee. (laughs) So what is the big takeaway from this recording? What implications does this have for us who are listening to this show and like, oh, that's cool that you got this, but what does it have to do with me? So, so generally, we need to learn about the transport of anything, particles, nuclear matter, electrons, what have you. But it's the hardest thing to calculate. So we need to do experiments. We need to try this out. It's not something that we can calculate. And so we have a substance that can be a standing for electrons, for neutrons, for crazy other stuff that's hard to reach or super hot. And we can probe it in a pristine fashion with laser light. And it gives us very, very good data that allows us to say, yes, quantum mechanics is right. And it gives a limit as to how perfectly things can flow, including electrons through your laptop wires. So that's wonderful to have such a substance that teaches us so many things And we can hopefully learn from that how to make everything else that we care about flow in a perfect way, including our mental vibes. (laughs) (laughs) When you first heard that 30-second clip, how did it feel? I loved it. We took these pictures, these, these videos of sound propagating through our fluid for ages and It's like taking lots and lots of ultrasounds at the doctors where you always look at the picture you hold in front of your hand, but you never listen to it. And then at some point, actually, a reporter said like, oh, can I listen to it, please? And we're like, "Uh, sure, true, why not? And of course, we ran the sound through loudspeakers and it was the most elating moment. It was hilarious to listen to it literally for the first time. She never thought of doing that. Well, Martin Zwierlein, professor of physics at MIT, thanks for chiming in about all this. Thanks so much. (laughs) Wonderful fun. (laughs) Speaking of flowing things, here's a headline for you from October. For the first time, physicists have achieved superconductivity at room temperature. Cool. I mean, room temperature. But what does this achievement mean for us? Ranga Diaz, assistant professor of mechanical engineering and of physics and astronomy at the University of Rochester in New York, led the team of scientists that made this breakthrough. 
I asked him, what is superconductivity and what's the big deal about room temperature? So the superconductor is, is a sort of like a phenomena that you have like zero electrical resistance. Like if you take any, you know, um, wires, a transmission line or in your home, you know, you, you have electrical wires. There is some resistance to this. So the beauty of superconductor is that this electron can pass through without any resistance. So that means that you're not going to lose any power or any energy, and then you can get this whole energy transferred through the materials without any loss. So that's why, the, in general, superconductors are very important uh, material. But all these phenomena happen at lower temperatures, minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit. So then, you know, we've been trying for more than a century how we can have these same properties at room temperature. All right. So you and your team took, and this is a crazy oversimplification, so forgive me. You took powdered carbon and sulfur, put it between two diamonds, exposed them to hydrogen gas, and then blasted the whole batch with a laser. And the result was that for the first time Ever, ever, you developed a superconductor, which, as you said, moves electricity with no resistance, saving time and money, at room temperature. Now, that is way cool, pardon the pun, but you've only really solved half the problem, right? The, the other half is developing a superconductor that works at room temperature and at room pressure. So take me into the future. Once that's achieved, how will it change how humankind operates? I would say in the medical science, I think there would be a huge uh, impact into that uh, in medical imaging that even right now we are using superconductors in MRI, but they, you need this cryogenic system, cool it down to low temperatures to get these uh, superconductors to uh, work. But imagine now if you have a room temperature, you room pressure material, then the cost for these uh, uh, MRI emissions will drastically change. We can improve the uh, medical imaging uh, system. Uh, in terms of, you know, the electricity, the, the power transmission, I think in terms of money, we lose like about $20 billion per year for the because of this resistance. Imagine now we can make a superconducting cable. So that means that our whole power grid system is going to drastically change. And then the, another cool thing is about these uh, superconductors that uh, the magnetic levitation, you know, you can have frictionless trains. World as we know it will dramatically change if we can really make this. So that's why I think it's been, you know, even though it's an old physics problem, you know, we've been focused for so long and we're trying hard to come to, you know, realization of room temperature, room pressure, uh, superconductor. So you know what the goal is, room pressure, room temperature, superconductor. Yes. Is there anything beyond that? For the, even building from this superconductor research, um, if the metallic hydrogen can be really superconducting and all these uh, the predictions are real, uh, they also can be used, it can also be used as a rocket fuel. And it's it's gonna be a very light uh, rocket fuel. So right now we need in you know, a multiple stage rockets to go to the, the space. So imagine if you have something with the hydrogen and the lighter uh, fuel that can use for these rocket engines. So you probably don't need a two stage or three stage uh, rockets to go to outer space. So your space travel be totally different. If I can see myself in 20, 30 years, you know, finding a new engine or something that work for these uh, space travel, uh, rocket fuel or something like that, 
will be really a cool thing to do. I think I think that's where I'm heading into. But it's maybe a little too ambitious, but I, I, I'm optimistic. I like that you're taking your whole existence on the planet Earth and focusing it to try to get off it. <laughs> well, Ranga Diaz, Assistant Professor of Medical Engineering and of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Rochester in New York, thank you for this super cool well, tepid, in a good way, conversation. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. When we get back, we're talking about the weight of the world, radio waves from distant planets, and dancing time crystals. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're celebrating the first month of the year by learning about recent firsts in scientific observations and achievements. Like the first time we've received radio signals from a planet outside of our solar system, and how time crystals have finally been observed interacting. Don't worry, I didn't know what a time crystal was either. Stand by. In the final segment of the show, you'll hear about a team of paleontologists and oncologists who diagnosed cancer in a dinosaur bone. But first, more firsts. Take a look around you right now. You may see some bricks, concrete, steel, plastic, definitely plastic, asphalt, you know, stuff humans have made. You also may see trees and soil, fungi, flowers and animals, you know, stuff that the planet has made, also called biomass. Well, here's your headline. Mass of human-made materials exceeds Earth's biomass for the first time. So that's not great and worth knowing more about. So I spoke with Professor Ron Milo of the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. He and his colleagues published this study last month. I asked him why was he interested in comparing biomass to how much stuff human beings have made? Right. So, so this really hasn't been done before this study. In a previous study, we did the census of life on Earth. This is like really looking at the biomass and collecting all the available information in order to give this holistic picture of all the living things on Earth. And once we finished that, and we saw that you know uh, there was a lot of interest in that and, and gave all sorts of interesting perspective, we said, hey, it's interesting to look at this thing, which is relatively constant, somewhat declining due to activities of, of us humans, to compare that to the mass of things being produced by humanity, which is rapidly rising as, as, as we see all around us. And then we said, okay, if there's something that's rapidly rising and something that's relatively constant, at some point they're supposed to intersect, meaning at some point in time we'll be transitioning into a situation where there will be more things produced by humanity than all living things on Earth. And we didn't guess when we raised the question that we'll find out a few years later that we are really at that transition point in time. Now I want to back up a little bit. My mind boggles at the prospect of measuring, <laughs> weighing biomass and weighing all the stuff we've created. So how exactly did you estimate the weights of all this stuff? In terms of biomass, we really aggregate the data from hundreds and hundreds of studies, each one building on many previous studies. And that gave us values on, you know, fish in this ocean and plankton in another ocean 
the massive uh, trees from satellites and how this compares to measurements on the ground, etc., etc. And so it was a it, it took several years and it built on all of that previous knowledge and that enabled us to finish the biomass part of it. On the other side, looking at the stuff created by humans, what's known as anthropogenic mass, meaning mass produced by humanity in products. So this is based on a field of study called uh, industrial ecology, where they created databases based on the Bureau of Statistics of different countries, different industries. So you would find like the cement industry in India, and they have an association, and they need to give the information to the Bureau of Statistics of India, and there you have everything there. And then production of glass in the U.S., you have aggregated information on that, and cement in China. And then you have to aggregate all of that information, and scientists have been very busy doing that for several decades. And so uh, colleagues in Austria, in Vienna, has actually assembled a huge database of all of that collection of information. And now what we did is combine these two together to give us this uh, comparison. What's some of the heaviest stuff that we humans make? Yeah, so what would you guess? Steel. So steel is definitely a big one, but the biggest one is actually related to buildings and infrastructure. So we find that the biggest components in terms of uh, anthropogenic mass, this mass produced by humanity, comes from uh, concrete and it comes from aggregates that are used as the base in order to build buildings and roads, etc. So below the asphalt, which is also a big contributor, you also have a lot of mass of those aggregates. And then, indeed, metals such as steel and aluminum, etc., are also accounted for. I know that changes in human behavior, in so many cases, it's it's not a straight line up a graph. It's often a zigzag, right? Like like during the Great Depression, uh, you've noted that the growth of human mass slowed. Is there any chance that this achievement, if you want to call it that, of human-made stuff surpassing naturally grown or living stuff is maybe it's an ebb or a flow type of thing that maybe we will zig or zag the other way in 2021, but, you know, without a Great Depression to make us do it? So, unfortunately, the mess of, you know, the weight of things we created, it accumulated, you know, for decades. It's not something that's easy to undo or to change rapidly. And whatever the impacts of COVID-19, I don't see that even, you know, making a big dent one way or the other. Like, it's a dent, but really just a dent. But I think this is not necessarily the, you know, the message or, or the key uh, take-home message in the sense that it's not only, okay, I, th I think this serves in order to give us this realization that we became a dominant force in shaping the, the face of the planet. And it's part also of our quality of life and things that we enjoy. So it's it's not easy to undo or I'm not claiming that, you know, I shouldn't enjoy the house I live in or the cell phone that I'm using. But it, it, I think with this realization also comes some responsibility that because we're not just a tiny component on Earth in terms of mass, where as, you know, our weight is as equal to and now becoming bigger than all of the living things around us, I think we should think twice about, you know, how do we build our houses? How much are we using 
a single-use plastic or other stuff. And all of those things, I think, are part of the understanding and trying to you know, navigate and, and, and decide on the actions that we take. So what's the worst-case scenario? Uh, unfortunately, there are a few. One of them relates to uh, climate change. Uh, we could get into these tipping points where the Earth system is really move, sliding into a new uh, steady state or a new condition that would be very difficult to undo in the lifetime of either us or our children or our grandchildren. And that is, that is a worst-case scenario, making Earth uh, a small inferno in the sense that you know, it really transitions into a condition that we wouldn't enjoy being in. Has this information and this study changed how you feel about humanity? This is a tough one in the sense that, uh, you know, I love humans, but I also... Yeah, big fan. Yeah, I also, I also love nature very much. And this balance is really, really challenging. So I have, uh, you know, I have three cute daughters but yeah, I'm very much aware of the fact that, you know, we should think deeply in terms of, you know, how many people do we want to have on planet Earth? And there's a real issue and real problem with population growth. It's really a dilemma here, how, how we're balancing. And, it, and it's tougher and tougher to balance, you know, now it's, we're 7.7 billion people. How do you solve that? I don't, have, I don't have a good answer. But definitely there are times where, you know, I enjoy being at nature and I don't look for other people and I won't, don't want to see any anthropogenic mess around me. Yeah, it's complicated, right? Yeah, we have some challenges, but at the same time, there's a lot to be thankful for. So I think we should also keep that in mind. Well, Ron Milo, professor at the Wiseman Institute at the Department of Plants and Environmental Sciences, thanks for breaking the heavy news to us. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to share it with others. That was Susan Tedeschi of the Tedeschi Trucks Band with some really good advice. Now, before I'd mentioned time crystals, I'd never heard of them until I saw this headline. For the first time ever, scientists caught time crystals interacting. Unless you're into quantum physics, you may be asking yourself, what in the world are time crystals and what's the big deal that we can finally watch them mix and mingle? Dr. Sam Outy is a senior research associate at Lancaster University in the United Kingdom. He and his team published his research in August, and he took on the daunting task of explaining time crystals to me. Well, this is a, um, a very fortunate and a very unfortunate name at the same time. Uh, it sounds like science fiction, uh, admittedly. So um, what you're suggesting is, is a system which is constantly moving. So basically, you take a large amount of particles and then you expect them to move in a repeated way or in a non-repeated way, but anyway, move instead of being stationary. And that they would do so somehow like spontaneously or like that, that, that this would be the characteristic feature of the state of matter. Now, that's unfortunately impossible 
because well, I mean, everybody who who has studied physics or even heard about physics uh, will will tell you that a perpetual motion machine cannot exist. Um, in quantum physics, it's fine for things to move forever, but it's only fine if you can't see it. It kind of baffles the mind, like that something being observed would be affected by being observed. But this is quantum physics, and everything's wonky. Well, observing sounds like I'm looking at it, but what it actually means is that you can connect to it. You can have an interaction. Now, if you can't have an interaction, then it means that nothing can leak out. So then, therefore, motion forever is not a big deal. But, but if you can observe it, by which I mean that you can interact with the system, then, then it also means that it must be able to leak. And so therefore it will die uh, eventually. This is the kind of the trade-off which you, which you get if you want to study a time crystal. I want to back up a little bit and maybe use some analogies so people can further wrap their head around time crystals. The jump rope analogy I read is, imagine... I spent a lot of time trying to understand time crystals before talking with you. <laughs> so the jump rope analogy I read is, imagine two people holding a jump rope and swinging it for a third person doing the jumping. In ordinary states of matter, the rope makes a circle every second, and the person must jump every second. But in a time crystal, it's as if the jumper lifts his or her feet every other time the rope hit the, hits the ground, and yet somehow keeps time and does not get entangled in the rope. Is that a good analogy? So what you want is a system which moves spontaneously. And one way of achieving, showing that the motion is spontaneous is that, that you, you push it one way, but it moves in some different way. And so, for example, you, you, you wave the system back and forth at one frequency, but the system moves at some different frequency. And that's what this jump rope analogy is trying to kind of catch. Another one is that uh, there is nothing like synchronous at all in the way you excite the system. This can also be done. You can just kind of hit the system and then it will find its way to this, this like periodic motion on its own. So, so if, if, if we use this jump rope approach, maybe this would be something like, okay, you've got this jump rope and you attach one end to a wall and, and then you just like pull the rope instead of waving it back and forth. And it somehow starts to rotate, even though you didn't really encourage it to do that. So, okay, cool. Like you got to observe two time crystals interacting. What in the world does that have to do with us? Why should we care? There is really a very large effort now to create quantum devices. So devices which, which uh, for example, calculate something like a computer, which cannot be done with classical computers. For this kind of purposes, the interaction which we found from in the time crystal context is, is a very basic requirement for doing pretty much anything. And while our system is very cold and requires some, some heavy infrastructure, it turns out that there is a room temperature system with similar physics. So potentially you can take that room temperature system and then put a little chip which contains this weird quantum physics into your, I don't know, watch or computer or smartphone and then make use of the fact that it obeys kind of different rules than you're used to. Well, nobody has really done this in a room temperature system yet for anything useful. But there are many people trying. So, so there is a good reason to believe that it will one day happen. Well, Dr. Sam Outy, 
Senior Research Associate at Lancaster University in the United Kingdom. Thank you for making the time to talk with me. No worries. This is a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here's your next headline. For the first time, scientists have received a radio signal from an alien planet. Okay, calling it an alien planet is a bit crude. Receiving signals from an exoplanet from outside our solar system is what's going on here. And we've got Dr. Jake Turner and his team to thank for the big news. He's a postdoctoral researcher at Cornell University and a member of the Carl Sagan Institute. He's the one who led the quest to detect these signals. I asked Jake to talk to me about what kind of radio transmissions he's talking about. Are they the same kind of radio transmissions you're hearing my voice through right now? Kind of. So we are we are listening at radio waves, but they're actually different frequencies uh, than we can hear with uh, the human ear. They're natural radio waves, so they're not created by any artificial intelligence. And we've known, for example, in our solar system, this, this has been happening for Jupiter since 1950s, uh, and sub- subsequently all the other planets that have magnetic fields in our solar system. So this is not Jupiter Public Radio. This is just, what is it? Is it the sun bouncing off the planet and voila, radio signals? Well, great question. So basically what is happening is for our solar system, uh, particles are coming from the sun, the solar wind. Um, the, there's electrons and protons in, uh, in the solar wind. These electrons get caught in the magnetic field of the planet. They gyrate around the magnetic field lines. And this gyration creates the radio waves. And that's actually what we're seeing. Um, and what's interesting about that is as, as the electrons continue on the magnetic field lines, they're emitting radio waves the whole time, but eventually they're going to hit the atmosphere of the planet and cause the aurora that we see on, uh, you know, for example, on Earth and, and Jupiter. So tell me about this exoplanet that you are detecting these radio waves from. How far away is it? And, and how did you know to point all of your equipment there? Yeah, great question. So the planet that we're studying is Tau Booties B. We call it a hot Jupiter. It's this massive Jupiter-like planet um, that's really close to its host star. It's orbits in about three days. So it's zipping around its star really, really quickly. Um, it's really hot. It's about 1,500 Kelvin. So you don't want to go there. Uh, it's you know more massive than Jupiter. It's about five times more massive than Jupiter. Uh, we've known it existed since the 90s. Um, so it's one of the you know one of the few first exoplanets we've we've detected. It's really close to Earth. It's 51 uh, light years away, relatively speaking. That's pretty close. So my PhD advisor, John Mateus Grassemeyer, he, he works in France. Um, during his PhD in 2007, so many years ago, he calculated all the known planets at the time and which ones would be good to observe radio emission on. And this was the, one of the top candidates. Um, and we've been updating these, these calculations ever since that. Every year, you know, every the new planet's coming out, we update these calculations. And this planet was always on top. And basically why this planet is, is on top is, uh, again, it's really massive, so it's, we can actually see it. Um, it's really close, and also it's really close to its host star, which means it's getting bombarded by a lot of electrons from, the, from its star. And the more electrons you have, the brighter the radio emission is going to be. So what changed in our technology and capabilities that made it so we finally got to detect these signals? Yeah, um, so we use a new telescope called LOFAR. It's the Low Frequency Array in the Netherlands. So it's really sensitive for these types of observations. And so that was the first step. We needed this really good telescope. Uh, the other thing is we need really good software and hardware. And also one thing that we did in the study that a lot of other people didn't do previously 
was we tried to look at almost the entire orbit of the planet. And this is really important because the mission that we see is not always pointed towards Earth. It's, it's going to be, you know, periodically pointed towards Earth sometimes and sometimes not. You think about like a, like, a, like a lighthouse, basically. And so we tried to observe the most, most of the orbit of this planet as much as possible. Um, and we, we actually did see that. We saw sometimes we saw a mission and sometimes we didn't. So we think that's really important for this as well. Now, I started off our conversation by reading this headline and it was the headline that made me want to talk to you. For the first time, scientists have received a radio signal from an alien planet. When we see a headline like that, I imagine otherworldly creatures on a faraway planet with their own public radio shows, interviewing researchers and broadcasting jazz concerts and political pundits. Is there a part of you, Jake Turner, that hopes to detect evidence of living breathing or whatever they would be doing extraterrestrial life and would radio signals like this be a kind of holy grail in that sense yeah um i i hope there is you know intelligent life out there that are listening to your own radio stations and stuff i'm a big star Wars, star trek fan for sure uh so yeah and we've you know seti has been doing just what you're you're saying has been looking for radio signals um for for many decades now from these artificial sources you know, some of the same techniques I used, and, and this, this study can be used for SETI searches as well. Um, it's definitely something that um, is very exciting to see what, what happens, and there's a lot of research into that as well. Cool. Well, Dr. Jake Turner, postdoctoral researcher at Cornell University and a member of the Carl Sagan Institute, thank you for this otherworldly conversation. Thank you for having me. After the break, long-distance quantum teleportation has happened for the first time ever. But is this the same kind of teleportation you're thinking of? Plus... We compared this particular dinosaur bone to uh, an osteosarcoma or bone cancer in a human, and they look almost identical in the same bone, same spot. Another big discovery that's the first of its kind. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This hour, you've been hearing about firsts in scientific observations and achievements, and we have two more big ones for you. Here's the headline Beam Me Up. Long distance quantum teleportation has happened for the first time ever. Panayotis Benzuris is the senior scientist and head of the Scientific Computing Division at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, and he's been part of the team that made that headline happen last month. Another thing he's achieved since then is possibly a record number of eye rolls at the beam me up part of that headline, because we are not talking about Star Trek here. But we're not not talking about Star Trek here either. First, I asked him, what does quantum teleportation achieve? It is clear, theoretically, because we haven't achieved everything we want yet, that we can, uh, using quantum technology means we can rely on quantum communications to deploy applications that we cannot deploy with classical means. And I will give you some examples without getting into too much detail. I mean, you can have security that is unprecedented in communications that you cannot achieve with classical means because an eavesdropper, you know, breaking, uh, you know, in and, and trying to steal information will, will break the protocol. So 
So uh, at worst, you're not you're going to receive garbage, but you know they're not going to steal anything, and you're going to know that something went wrong. Okay. So in very simple ways. And what does it mean? It means a lot for everyday life. It means that your personal information can be secure. It means that your bank transactions can be secure. You can have a GPS that is both more accurate and also unhackable. So, you know, an evildoer, whoever this evildoer is, will not make our airplanes collide midair because they're going to do some bad things. In order to fully take advantage of the power of quantum computers, you want to put them together, like we do with classical computers. The only way to put them together in a quantum way for, you know, computations and exchange of information to happen at the most advantageous way is with quantum networks. Quantum teleportation is a very important element of building a quantum network because the most elemental thing you can do is a quantum link from point A to point B. You need to quantumly link these two locations. So you use entanglement and the way you send information from one location to the other is through quantum teleportation. So what we did is we demonstrated high fidelity, sustained operation of such a quantum teleportation channel over a large enough distance. Because when we lay people see the word teleportation, we think Star Trek, we think beam me up, Scotty. And I know that this misunderstanding is a thorn in your side, but is there any relationship between quantum teleportation, sending information this way, and sending anything else? I cannot answer this question. I can speculate. Let's say that somehow such a protocol will be discovered. Okay, that will, you know, take you apart into small pieces and uh, somehow, uh, you know, imprint these small pieces in some kind of carrier and send you away and then put you back together without putting, you know, the left part of your brain where your foot is and et cetera, et cetera. Let's say that this thing exists. It will have to be some kind of radiation, you know, whatever, so, yeah, I mean, everything is quantum at the end. So quantum will be, uh, you know, involved. But, you know, you, you, you're not talking hypothetically here, but, I mean, you know, my colleagues are going to kill me. Uh, you really want to, to transfer yourself. Huh? So, so let's say that I take all the information that is, uh, that is stored in your head. And, and now we can get into religion, so I should stop. Because assuming that the only thing that you are is what the information that you have in your head and nothing else, then I can somehow you know, encode that into, you know, my teleportation process somehow. I mean, I don't have the means now, but somehow in the future I might be able to do that. And then let's say that I've made somewhere far away a total copy of you, you know, that is nothing. That is just, Like a shell. Exactly, a shell of you. And then I just go and just dump the information in your head and, eh, you know, you see how ridiculous that is? I mean, uh, so anyway, anyway. So my last question is, now that you and your team have achieved all this, what's next? Very good. So actually, let me, let me give credit to where credit is due. It's not just my team, Fermilab team. As a matter of fact, this is a collaboration between Caltech, uh, Fermilab, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and, and actually uh, AT&T. So, you know, there is, a, uh, there is a, an entity that, that goes in the corporate world, uh, um, so, you know, this is this a development in, uh, in achieving, you know, high fidelity, sustained teleportation. I told you that teleportation is an essential element for deploying quantum networks. And, uh, and you know, uh, the Department of Energy recently, you know, put out uh, a blueprint for how to develop a quantum internet. All of these things, you know, are steps towards 
developing the technology and, and the know-how to eventually have a quantum internet which will connect the nice quantum computers that will do this distributed quantum computing and the nice quantum sensors that will give you all these wonderful applications and will allow you to have uh, you know very high level of security for the things that you don't want others to acquire. Do you think it'll happen in your lifetime? Um, I'm, I am 56 here. I don't hide my age. So, so you know, uh, intellectually, maybe I'll be, you know, uh, uh, sharp maybe for another 10 years. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I mean, so in my scientific lifetime, I hope we do some of the first steps. I mean, I think that we will certainly, you know, have a, some form of quantum networks that have some form of quantum applications that are useful. Now, for a full, fully uh, you know, deployed and developed quantum internet where you can do you know, many quantum things, I mean, the, quant the distributed quantum computing that I talked about and all that, there are too many unknowns. So there I will say certainly not within my useful scientific life. Now, I could live 100 years old. I mean, you know, I had grandparents that made it to 90. So, so you know, that is, uh, what, 30-something years from now? Maybe. I can't, I mean, I hope I stay alive to see it, but I don't know. Well, Panayotis Spenzuris, senior scientist and head of the Scientific Computing Division at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, thanks for talking with me. I feel like we really went somewhere. Good. I am glad. I mean, hopefully I didn't torture you because, I mean, I, I tried to not throw too many weird things, but it's habit. So I apologize if I did. Thank you. All right, here's our final headline, and it's from August of last year. Malignant cancer diagnosed in a dinosaur for the first time. To hear more about this poor dinosaur, I spoke with paleontologist David Evans. He's the curator of dinosaurs at the Royal Ontario Museum, an associate professor at the University of Toronto, and he was the leader of that research team. I had to ask, why would anyone want to look for cancer in a dinosaur bone? It's a bit of a, a, a serendipitous story. Um, and it actually goes back to a, a night at the museum where I made a, a fortuitous connection uh, with one of our donors who happens to be the chair of medicine at McMaster University. This is Mark Crowther. And uh, we started discussing points of collaboration between a you know, a big shot medical doctor and a dinosaur paleontologist. And of course, the discussion came to diseases in dinosaurs. We've known, you know, since we started discovering dinosaurs, that dinosaurs uh, could get broken bones and could get diseases. But uh, we were discussing, you know, what would, what would be the most sort of interesting and impactful disease that we could find in a dinosaur fossil. And of course, uh, cancer was one that we, we could find that hadn't been documented uh, in any sort of definitive way. And that started our search. We sort of resolved right there to try to find bone cancer in, in a dinosaur. And uh, it ended up with, uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the oldest cases of cancer known and uh, the first uh, true diagnosis of cancer in a dinosaur. So tell me about this poor dinosaur. What kind of dinosaur was it? Oh, this was a horned dinosaur, a close relative of Triceratops. Uh, the animal is called Centrosaurus, and the bone itself was actually found in the early 1980s by crews from the Royal Terrell Museum in Dinosaur Provincial Park in uh, 77 million old, old rocks 
of the Dinosaur Park Formation in Alberta. Um, when the original bone was dug up, the scientists who dug it up noticed that it was odd. It's that the bone is really gnarly. It's like a one end of it has this like really rough and rugose knob of spongy bone bigger than an apple. Um, that is certainly unusual. Um, but they thought that it was just a, a fracture callus. So this is the bone that rapidly forms around a break to stabilize it um, so that the bone can heal more properly over time and the animal can put weight on it. Dinosaurs broke bones all the time. Um, they put it in the drawers uh, in uh, the collection at the Tyrrell Museum and there it sat for over, geez, over 30 years uh, until uh, I took Mark there saying that I knew this was one of the world's best collections of pathologic or diseased dinosaur bones. And uh, we went through hundreds of bones and uh, we found this one bone, which turned out to be a, actually a much better candidate for cancer than it was for a base, a fracture callus. And that's where our, our research really started. So you've got all this evidence, you've got the imagery. How did you actually diagnose it? Essentially, we biopsied this dinosaur bone. And again, this is what makes our research really unique compared to other suggestions that dinosaurs had cancer, even a lot of the other diseases that are suspected in the dinosaur record. We looked at the shape of the bone, basically how unusual it looked. What was interesting when we first saw the bone that tipped us off that it might not be a fracture callus or an infection is that we had this big sort of gnarly tumor. And then if you look down the shaft from the knee going towards the ankle, this was a leg bone. There was another sort of roughened, looked like tumorous patch, but much smaller. Then when you got down to the ankle, it looked like there was even another sort of malformity. And it looked like the tumor was progressing through the bone. And this is something that you do not get in a fracture, for instance. Uh, but we couldn't just leave it from there. We had to actually go inside the bone and confirm that we had cancerous bone cells that were moving through that bone from knee to ankle. And so we then uh, CT scan the bone with very high powered CT scanners uh, at the University of Texas in Austin. And then we actually cut that bone, serially sectioned it, ground it down so that we could pass light through it, put it on slides. And we actually looked at the areas where basically the, the bone forming cells sat. And we could look at how that cancerous bone developed um, at the cellular level. And so we were able to basically go from gross morphology right down to the cancer cells uh, in a way, and exactly how you would do it uh, with modern, with a, with a human patient. And that's what confirmed the diagnosis. Again, we're as sure as this, that this is bone cancer as we, as in dinosaurs, we would be in a, in a modern patient. In fact, we compared this particular dinosaur bone to uh, an osteosarcoma or bone cancer in a human, and they look almost identical in the same bone, same spot. So I assume that this cancer is painful in human beings. Is it reasonable to assume that this poor Centrosaurus was in pain too? Yeah, that's something that we can answer. The bone development is really striking. The cancerous development is really striking. The tumor on this bone is very large. In fact, it's in the middle of the shin bone. The top of the shin bone, we don't even have preserved, and it's possible that that it had basically been broken in life, which is why we're missing it. Uh, and we could see by documenting the progression of the osteosarcoma that it's at a very advanced stage. So this individual would have been in a, a horrible amount of pain. It would have certainly felt it when it walked. It certainly would have um, hindered the mobility of this individual. Uh, 
but it probably didn't kill this particular ind individual. And this is a bit of a twist in the story. So the original excavators found it in this bone bed of hundreds to thousands of other individual Centrosaurus, members of the same species, um, that all died together in what scientists have, have suggested or hypothesized is basically a coastal flood or a uh, tropical storm uh, type situation. And we think that the reason that this cancer got to such an advanced state might actually be uh, because these animals lived in a protective herd. The animal would have certainly been in a lot of pain uh, and it would have been much more susceptible to attacks from some of these you know, marauding and menacing tyrannosaurs, which were the top predators at the time. But this animal was living in a herd that almost certainly provided some protection and it allowed that cancer to get to that advanced stage, such an advanced stage that we could identify it. Uh, and so that is an exciting aspect of, of the research in itself. I mean, these animals probably took care of each other and that safety in numbers certainly would have benefited this individual, although it would have you know, lived quite a painful last probably few months of its life. So I feel for this dino, I really do. And it's funny, it's a Cetrosaurus and it was probably pretty sore, but sorry, I had to. <laughs> but what does this discovery have to do with us selfish human beings? Why should we care? So this research gives us an interesting perspective on dinosaur lives. You know, it, it, dinosaurs are almost thought of as, as mythical creatures. Uh, and this shows that they were affected by some of the same illnesses and diseases, including debilitating deadly diseases, like affect animals, including humans today. Uh, the other thing is that it gives us information on the antiquity and the distribution of these diseases in animals writ large. And this is important. It not only shows that both humans and dinosaurs were affected by cancer, but it shows, given how old their common ancestor is, over 300 million years old, that these diseases probably go back much further and affected all sorts of animals with bones over their entire evolutionary history. It also gives insight into the evolution of osteosarcoma in particular. What's interesting about osteosarcoma in humans is it's actually most common in younger individuals um, that are actively growing, and it tends to uh, manifest itself in the bones that are the most rapidly growing, those of the limbs, particularly around the knee. And the bone that we found of this centrosaurus is a shin bone, it's, of, it's a fibula bone, and it shows that osteosarcoma was had basically the same MO um, over millions of years. Um, it operated in a very similar way in the dinosaur, affecting the rapidly growing long bones of the limbs in what we can tell is a sub-adult dinosaur, a rapidly growing dinosaur, as it does in humans. And so it's a real remarkable connection between dinosaurs and humans that describes you know, a relationship between cancer and bones that goes much deeper. My final question for you may be the most difficult. What's your favorite dinosaur? <laughs> oh, geez, this is a hard one. I'm a dinosaur lover of all shapes and sizes, but I'd probably say my favorite dinosaur is um, also from Alberta, lived alongside Centrosaurus, also a plant eater, but it's a duck-billed dinosaur called Parasaurolophus. basically had a huge trombone-like crest coming off the back of its head that it used to 
to make noises and communicate with other dinosaurs. And so that one's my favorite, the musical dinosaur. Is there any way to know how it sounded? Um, there's been some pretty uh, sophisticated modeling of what this dinosaur might have sounded like based on principles of, of acoustic physics. And you can listen to what this dinosaur might have sounded like. And it's pretty darn cool. Very low, sort of like tuba-like noises, very you know, eerie, but, uh, but really cool. Well, David Evans, curator of dinosaurs at the Royal Ontario Museum and associate professor at the University of Toronto. Thanks for this. I'm sorry, I have to do it again. Dynamite conversation. <laughs> oh, it was absolutely my pleasure. Love talking dinosaurs. You know, I couldn't end the show without playing you some of those sweet, sweet parasaurolophus sounds. So here's our best guess of what those horns may have sounded like, according to the good folks at the Sandia National Laboratories and the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science. And what would it sound like if you combined those sounds from 75 million years ago with the sound you heard earlier in the show of a perfect fluid? Now that's a remix. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford to subscribe and listen back to shows about things like the philosophy that it's immoral to have children and we should collectively self-extinct, what it's like having your arm ripped off by a tiger, what it's like to be a 99-year-old record-setting, policy-changing World War II fighter pilot who's also transgender, and relationship advice from people who've been married for over 50 years, visit ctpublic.org slash audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf. And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.